Welcome back, everyone, once again to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host as usual, Rob Santos, and of course I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And I am literally less than an hour gone from finishing our subject material for today, Brandon Sanderson's Rhythm of War Part 3. What a frantic few days we've had, haven't we, Drew, going into this? Yes. Uh, yes, we have. It's been... Ha- uh, it, yeah. it has been... It, it has <laughs> been, been fun, quite... But... Yeah, quite a... Uh, <laughs> quite a last couple of days cruising through the, this book and, and recording episodes and and uh, just generally kind of going crazy. Yeah, yeah this. this is the fourth episode that we've recorded, full-length episode that we've recorded in three days. So... You can just and I've been reading Rhythm of War the entire time. So let's just get cracking, Drew. What the hell did I just read? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, so we started off with our second set of interludes uh, with Vire leading the way. And in case we, you know, needed any more reason to dislike Moash, well, here it is. And uh, and then after that, we have a lift interlude and. Let's just say this lift interlude feels a little different from the previous lift content we've gotten in the Stormlight Archive thus far. Uh, it's it's much darker in tone, um, much more mm, profound, and it ends on a pretty scary note, where Lift runs into Mraes and gets captured. And then, of course, we have Teravangian, as he is our interlude novella character. Uh, and, and this time, he's uh, he is directed by Odium to set in motion his betrayal. He, he directs the armies of Yaakoved to turn on their allies in the coalition. And he has a, a final meeting, well, maybe, uh, you know, before... Um, before he he sets all this in motion, he has one last meeting with Odium where he uh, is kind of confronted and he realizes Odium Odium can uh, be scared. And he can be scared by Zeth and Nightblood, which is very interesting. So, uh, from there we head on into part three, where Urithiru is... Fully occupied, uh, Navani begins her research with Raboniel, uh, starts off with her kind of trying to give Raboniel the runaround, you know, having her ardents and scholars do busy work and, and just, just nothing of substance before Raboniel kind of figures it out and, and puts more strictures on Navani, but most importantly gets Navani interested. And what she's interested in is the nature of light. Where we see stormlight, void light, life light, mm. and tower light. We have some pretty major, pretty major things preached in this part about the nature of investiture on Roshar. So excited. Yeah, and then uh, um, <laughs> Kaladin, of course, is uh, on the run in Urithiru. He, he gets teft to a safe place with the help of the sibling and david shows up uh helping kaladin out um kaladin finally finds a way um to fight back a little bit there are four nodes protecting 
you know, the the heart of the tower. One of them was destroyed when Navani activated the defenses, and a, a second and third are destroyed in this portion, and we are left with one final node protecting the sibling. And we don't know where that is, but in the process of protecting and destroying these nodes, Kaladin is is grievously wounded, stumbles his way outside into the middle of a high storm, and is about to die, before Dalinar swings by in the storm, collects him up, gets some vital information, and then dumps Kaladin on an eighth floor balcony to protect him from the high storm. And speaking of Dalinar, we have some news from the front. Uh, we have a couple of battle scenes where we see the, the situation in Emul, where we have Skybreakers attacking, and Dalinar has a very, very intriguing moment with the Herald Nalan, as he connects with a capital C and sees some of Nalan's history mm. and, and gains a little more of an understanding of what the Oath Pact is. We also have some points of view from Yasna as she's fighting on the front lines and trying to uh, demonstrate her worth uh, as a queen and as a warrior. We also have a, a nice little scene of her manipulating High Prince Ruthar into uh, losing his title and, and station because he's the last kind of holdout High Prince who's been causing them trouble. So, we have, we have a lot to discuss today. Amen. <clears throat> yes, we do. Uh, <laughs> so, style. I have a little more about style that I want to discuss today than I had yesterday or the day before. Um, it's still not like, you know, a ton, because, well, at least not compared to my extraordinary list on Cosmere-wide spoilers and theories that I want to get into after this. Um, but, you know, let's start with style, as we normally do. I noticed very, very near to the end of our read for today, and this is going to be just a stupid aesthetic little point, um, Raboniel uses a word that kind of rubbed me the wrong way at first. I'd never really heard it used in this fashion. She's talking about having deceived N uh, Navani and the sibling into divulging their plans while spying on their conversations. And she actually says... The sibling has always been aware of their own naiveness, not naivete. Oh, yeah. Naiveness, yeah. and I, I, I've never seen it spelled or used in that fashion. I didn't even know that was a thing. I looked it up, and apparently, it absolutely is a thing. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so this is not like awesomeness or or something like that. It's just uh, a different form of the word that I've never seen used before. Like, and I, judging by your reaction there, you kind of pause on that one as well too for a sec. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I stumbled over that the first time I read this as well, but but it is a a style thing. It's it's Brandon personally prefers naiveness over naivete. Hmm. And, Interesting. Uh, and yeah, that's Absolutely. that's his prerogative. Entertain the, the notion author. for a, a, a split second that this could have been um, something to do with the you know translation or an error in translation, in the same way that offworlders. <clears throat> often make small mistakes with the language that they have little quirks with their verbatim that don't quite seem to make sense. I figured mm, maybe this is involved with that as well. I mean, she's from Braze, right? I mean, we, like, do, the, do the Fused have their own language? I think they do have their own language, don't they? They speak in the Dawn Chant. Oh, okay, that makes a lot more sense, they're, actually. I mean, they're originally makes a lot more from sense. Roshar. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, but I, I mean... No, I think that was just a, you know, a, yeah. just a, to see what a you real think world of it, style choice on Brandon's part. 
Um, and and speaking of real world style choices on Brandon's part, he he does prefer to use some anachronistic language. Uh, I was bothered twice in this section. Navani talks about a crash course. Oh, and and I was like, eh, that that rubbed me r- the wrong way a little bit. But really, you know, I, I gotta hmm. I gotta just you know let let that slide. That's that's Brandon Sanderson. It's not um, obnoxious you know, though. I mean, I'm, I was totally fine. I didn't even notice yeah, it. It's, it's I remember no reading homicidal hat trick. But yeah, <laughs> we're, we are never gonna let that one die. You are never gonna no, let that one die. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but. But let's talk about the pacing for this, because we've talked about the pacing in part one and part two, and how different the pacing was in those from previously established structures in the Stormlight Archive. Did you think this part three felt different? It, it, to me, it read a lot like the part three that we got in Oathbringer, definitely, a lot more than it would have read like part three of The Way of Kings or Words of Radiance, in that there is... A, it's it's for the vast majority one setting and it is it is a crescendo. It is rising action throughout the entire thing in a pretty steady format. So, I mean, I really really liked it. You know, it was and it ended with a bang, just yeah. like I expected. Um, <laughs> but you're you're right in that it doesn't to me it doesn't read very much like parts three in, in uh, Words of Radiance or The Way of Kings. But it definitely reminded me of Oathbringer in a lot of ways in a way in ways that I approved. Yeah, yeah, I I agree there. Um, I was going to mention Oathbringers Part 3. Hmm. And Colinar, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a gravity to Part 3 in, in Colinar and a gravity to Part 3 here at Urethiru that I don't think is there in Way of Kings and Words of Radiance. And mm-hmm. that is, you know, perhaps just the nature of the story oh, wait being a second. deeper in. In, in Words of Radiance, but, though, White Spine on Cage, that took place in Part 3, didn't it? Because it, Part 3 ended. Yeah. With the conclusion but, of but that. But again, think about the stakes for that scene. It's a great uh, part-ending climax with the you know the four versus one duel. It's, you're right. It's still more but intimate. The stakes, stakes for that are so so much smaller than yeah. what's going on here in in uh, <laughs> Rhythm of War. Yeah. Oh my god! You, you make a good point. This yep. is this is world-shaking stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I mean I just. I, I said it in in our part one episode how I didn't particularly love part one in Rhythm of War, but but that it would just get better from there. Oh man, what do you think, Rob? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I am gonna be uh, yeah. I'll just get it out of the way now, dude. We're in part three. We are in part three. There were there were moments, and I'm gonna be elaborating upon this later in this very episode where I was learning things that had me going, oh my god, it it. I might actually stop. I, I need to. I need to take a break from this. How much more can I take all at once? You need to give me time, Brandon. So, it, I'll, I'll elaborate. I'll say you know what. A lot of it was with Navani. When we get to our character discussion on Navani, I'll be you know going into a lot more detail there. But mm-hmm. I absolutely see what you're saying. I find myself at points in part three going, "How are there two more significant chunks of this book left? How?" It, like, this part itself feels like it could be an installment by any other author, except for how f***ing badass it is. But there's just... The scope of this book is really hard to digest, you know? It's hard to swallow all at once. It, it is. It, this is the most demanding Stormlight Archive book. Oh, my God. Start. Without question. And, and, and it's the darkest. Yeah. Yeah, I'll agree. I mean, some of the stuff that Kaladin is dealing with here, this is the worst Kaladin has ever, the worst state he's ever been in. 
Mm. You know. Mm. Oh my God, that I agree where, with that. Where, you know, you, you mentioned it a little bit in part two, but real, real effects here in part three with Syl. Oh my God. Yeah. Yep, and I'm going to make and, one small point about that in Calvin's uh, character yeah, discussion it, here. It's it, just the tone of this book is so intense, so dark. It's just, it's Brandon Sanderson taking this to another level. Hmm. I want to talk about the epigraphs, and I want to ask yeah. what the hell is going on here like who is writing these my what i'm trying my best guess is venley venley is writing these but who is l who who the f is l i need to know this and we didn't find it out i will just leave that with my tone of indignation there so yeah there's there's a whole lot of raffo <laughs> Uh, but but there's a whole lot of not Raffo that we could talk about with these uh, these epigraphs as well. I think this is a really neat thing he's doing, just in terms of style. These epigraphs are from a text called Rhythm of War. But some of the epigraphs are from undertext, commentary on Rhythm of War. And I think that's really neat. It's an in-universe text... On an in-universe text. Mm. Uh, if if any of our listeners have have read um, uh, something like House of Leaves, or even the Illuminae Files, this is something we get there, where there's commentary, a character in-world writing commentary on a text, or, or discussing an in-world extent text. So there's layers to it. Metatextual, mm. as we call it. It's... Uh, it's it's something new that Brandon's dabbling with here. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I just oh, I was teased so hard with the with that two word name a couple times that I just want to know more, and I don't care about the rest of it because I can't two stop focusing. Anyway. L L. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Let's talk about the flashbacks. Esh and I, Venley, back yes. and forth, back and forth. I have to admit something. I I mean I've admitted this before. I just don't really care like at all. I'm. I mean, I'm interested, obviously, in the secrets to hunt for. Axendweth being a perfect example mm, of this. Mm. I'm going to talk about her later in the spoiler discussion. Yes, yes, uh, And once I'm in the middle, you know, of these scenes, I'm, I'm more invested. But each and every time, and I will say this, every time I notice this, without fail, when we left Navani or we left Kaladin or we left Dalinar behind, and I saw the next chapter beginning with... Eight years ago, I just went, oh, damn it. And I sat there for a minute at a time, just unconsciously wanting, just sometimes actually moving to skip it before realizing, no, what the hell am I doing? This is a first read, dumbass. You can't, you literally can't do that. And so I've, I've been, and I've been pretty open before on, on forums and on these episodes in the past. I just, I don't, I don't really care about the Parshendi. I can care about them individually. I, I'm really cheering for Relayne. I'm starting to come around on Venli, you know, mm -hmm. and I've got an inkling about, you know, her importance going forward. You know, I think, uh, yeah, I'll get to my predictions on that later. I've lamented that Venli is involved at all because I preferred Eshenai. I'm still, uh, yeah, I was invested in Eshenai before she was so unexpectedly killed. But as as a whole, as the Parshendi and their, their whole 
plotline there. I just, I don't care for the descriptions of these people. I'm tired of hearing about their rhythms. I don't care about dancing around the <laughs> mysteries of their past. While all of this is going on in the present, the flashbacks just don't interest me on the whole. And when they're flashbacks about characters that I don't care about, it just, it kind of spokes the momentum for me. Yeah, uh, I, I actually agree with you. This is my least favorite set of flashbacks. Like, the, the flashbacks in part three here, just... I, I, like you said, there are a couple of, you know, juicy little lore things that we can dig into in them. Mm -hmm. But generally, the narrative being told in these flashbacks does break up the momentum of the story and doesn't interest me all that much. And maybe that is... Uh, partially in relation to the main narrative that Brandon is doing such an incredible job with the oh, sure. current timeline narrative that it is painful to step away from it. But, you know, I, I just... I just feel like they're there because the expectation is there at this point. This is the structure that he's gone with, yeah, but it's I mean, not... I mean, there is a reason for them to be there, but, but it's just... Oh, yeah. The journey, you know... Journey before destination, sure, but the journey here, I'm not as big a fan of. It just, um, and I use this word yeah, very, very yeah. cautiously, but it just kind of feels like a chore that you have to do regularly before mm -hmm. you get back to having fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but as far as uh, the structure of these things go, this is also a departure here. We did not have any flashbacks in parts one or two for the yep. first time. Yep. Uh, and and that is that is certainly a, a different approach that Brandon is taking. And of course, we have flashbacks from two points of view. We have flashbacks from both Esher and I and Venley. And and I appreciate that. I do think he made the right choice uh, in moving it from just Esher and I to Esher and I and Venley, so that we get these kind of competing perspectives on mm. the same narrative. Yeah that, yeah, that makes it more interesting. Uh, but it's still my least favorite. You know, like, I I just... I can't imagine what it would have been if it was just Ash and I. I. I may have just outright not liked the flashbacks. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the case. I mean, they are Brandon Sanderson, so you, you like, there is still a lot to like, uh, still a lot yeah. to like in them, but I just... Mm, this is not, not his but best I it, work. I think Look, character shows, work is on point with these. I think it shows his growth as a writer and just how good he's getting, though, that... As he was in the planning stages of this book, he recognized, wait a second, this isn't going to work with just Ash and I in the flashbacks. I need to make this better. And and he identified a problem, and, and he definitely succeeded in improving it. Hmm. So, uh, but, but yeah, let's, let's move into the meat of this thing, because... My goodness, is there a lot of meat to, to dig into. <laughs> what do you mean by meat? You want to go into characters? Because I still have a couple little uh, style points. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, get a, get those last couple out of the way here. Okay. Uh, the cliffhangers are on point. I don't often talk about cliffhangers because I realize how expected they can be and how they're probably discussed to death as it is by the rest of the fandom. But I had to draw a point here on chapter 64 at the end of this chapter where Wit decides to say to Yasna... It's time I told you about Thytokar. And I'm left <laughs> turning the page and going, Oh my god, what? You don't end it there. You can't end it there. I was indignant. I was like, come Oh god. You know, I just wanted more. But again, as a style point, I think it was just, it's an excellent weapon. 
used. You know, yeah. it's just <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and it's it's worth mentioning, you know, that uh, as these preview chapters have been coming out week by week on Tor.com, and Brandon has been doing his chapter annotations on the Reddit threads for each, you know, each thing. Uh, oh, one of read the annotations he did, I, I can't remember which which chapter, it may have been like 12 or 13, uh, he, he specifically said that figures like Restaris and Thytokar have been hiding in the background, and now it's time for them to be a little more important to the story. So, hmm. uh, and, and we certainly, you know... I'm glad to hear that. Just was it just last week, or was it uh, in last week? Why well, I, I say last week? I guess the episode will have come out. <laughs> well, for week, for those listening, it'll be last week. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was either in in part one or part two where you had a prediction that Thydekar was a world hopper, and here you go, Rob. <laughs> oh, I mean, I've been saying, I've been yeah, I've been talking about that for a while. <laughs> yeah. So so there's there's your confirmation that. Uh, Thetakar is indeed a world hopper. Hoyd has I mean, met I, him on other worlds. <laughs> I took it for granted here because we knew he was involved with the Ghost Bloods, and the Ghost Bloods, as an organization, mm-hmm. are rather world hoppy as a people. So yes. I mean, I, I, I took that for granted that he. I just my my. Uh, oh, sorry. Did you did you say you said off worlder, didn't you? Oh, world hopper. Oh, world hopper. Okay, for a second, because I made the distinction last week slash yesterday. Yeah, for you us, thought he was not born on Roshar. That he would like it was literally yes, an off worlder. That he perhaps is a step further as a stranger, as an alien, and didn't originate from Roshar. If we if yeah. we see if we meet him, I swear to God, if we meet him and his eyes are described as being slightly too big or childlike or shin, I'll know. Yeah, right there, there I'll go. know. Um. Any yep, more yep, yep. One last style point, and I want to talk about the hard science. I freaking love it. I love all of it. All of these <laughs> things. I, uh, of all things for that I expected this book to touch upon, Navani is investigating particle wave duality. She's investigating light and the properties of that light and splitting the light and then venturing even into the realm of matter, antimatter, annihilation. I'm just like, <gasps> I am dropping my phone in shock at this point. I was so not ready for this magic system to go so deep and I am so on board for it. I just, I want more and I'm so excited. Yeah, and, and I guess it's good you brought that up because it reminded me of something that I have forgotten to, to mention. Oh? Uh, there is a term brought up a couple of times now. Axi? Axial. Axi. This is the yes. in-universe term for atoms. An axon is an I... atom. Axial is atomic. Axi is atoms. I was going to say molecular. But yeah, it's pretty, it's, 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 at this point, it can be synonymous for their intents and purposes. Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, I I just I know it's easy to um, perhaps mistake meaning because the root of that word you know you think of like an axis or an axle or something like that uh, yeah turning but this is pivot, yeah. yeah this is specifically we're we're talking about <laughs> super microscopic level we're atoms. going into etymology here indivisible yeah. right atom mm-hmm. from the ancient Greek yes so. Uh, so yeah, I think I think we should head on into character. 
I agree. <laughs> we can start with Kaladin once again. Yeah. All right. Okay. I actually have a quick continuity question. This is something I just assumed that I'm, I must have forgotten that we learned, or maybe I wasn't paying uh, close enough attention. But why is it that the first time Kaladin establishes contact with Navani, he doesn't even bat an eye at learning that the sibling is not only alive, but also conscious and has been the whole time? He just responds as if he already knows that. Like, how would he have known that? Um, uh, he, he doesn't. I think this is just a signifier of what Kaladin's mental state is. For one thing, Kaladin's personality doesn't lend itself to, like, curiosity. Sure. And, okay. yeah, and yeah. lore fair. In, in that case. But also, this is a guy who is, like, literally on his last legs, is in the grip of despair, and he has much more immediate worries than... Oh, this one bondsmith's friend is alive, and he but, may not even like. You know, I, I don't know. I, I didn't have an issue with it, but you are right. He does not know before that that the sibling is alive. I would say even for that specific reason, though, that he's literally at the end of his rope. That since he's so desperate and he's so stressed and he's so torn between all his different responsibilities. That, like something like this could be a way to fight back. This could have been a huge revelation for him, and like, oh, okay, it's another piece of the puzzle. This is maybe another source of help we could have. Like, it, just the fact that he didn't even stop to question it kind of made me go, huh, okay. And you could be right. You could absolutely be right. He's just so so on edge that he doesn't have time to stop and consider the details. He just has to point himself and go. But it still it, it gave me pause. I was like. Okay, that was a little uh, casual, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's fair. I, I can't disagree with you there. I just didn't personally have an issue with it because sure. I kind of have my own internal rationalization for yeah, I just, it. Yeah, I just, I just figured that, oh, I must have missed the actual moment or some detail of what we actually found out that he knows this already. I just figured it was it was my problem regardless, yeah. <laughs> so um, um, I have a stupid yeah. little aesthetic point as well to make with Cal one of Kaladin's scenes here uh, <laughs> there's a moment where Kaladin is squeezing through the shafts after he steals the span reeds he, yeah. he gets the plea for help from the sibling and in this moment he almost gives up he like he, he bows his head he just collapses but then he thinks he couldn't afford to be tired he had to be Kaladin storm blessed and we as readers we can feel the weight of that responsibility of all, the weight of all those hopes. I love this moment. And then, of course, I have to go into the reason why I promised this was going to be a stupid point. That final line in chapter 58, this is where this happens. We're going to need to find me a better weapon. Takes me right back to 2004, playing the Halo 2 campaign for the first yep. time, where the Master Chief says to Sergeant Avery Johnson, I need a weapon. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I just I started giggling and I didn't know why I was just like this is I, I love it I love it yeah yeah I I, uh, I feel you there I feel the 12 year old inside of me just goes Ying! awesome yeah. so sorry go ahead with what you want to say but, about Kaladin yeah I want to talk about Kaladin and Moash and their relationship okay even though we didn't really get much more of it in this part oh I think we did how so well we got a an interlude from Moash's point of view Okay. And a plan on Odium's part to break Kaladin. Oh. That yeah. Moash is 100% facilitating and on board with. And then mm -hmm. we see it in action. Nightmares on Braze. Nightmares oh, well, in, in damnation. 
of Kaladin just killing his own brother. Being forced to kill and watch those he wants to protect die over and over again. And Moash, right there, right there in the center of it all. Join me at the edge. Jump over. And this is, this is destroying Kaladin. I mean, it is. It's destroying him. Hmm. The guy was already having trouble sleeping. You know? He's... He is a man unraveling at the seams in this part. I I just don't know if I can take any more reason to hate Moash. That cup is full, and he's just adding more constantly. I, I, I mentioned, you know, in previous Rhythm of War episodes... I do not ever want to see another person try to defend Moash online ever again after this book. <laughs> Without having read the book. Maybe they'd be like, oh, I'm just starting it out. But no, no nobody that's read Rhythm of War is allowed yeah. to say that. You're right. I'm yeah, with you. Like at, at, after this book comes out, after somebody reads, even, even just like past like whatever, chapter eight, but especially into part three, if that person posts defending Moash, you, you just know. This is a troll. This is somebody just trying to piss people off on the internet for fun. Or it's somebody who seriously needs to seek therapy. (laughs) (laughs) I I may just put that one forward. Of course, you know, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive either. Um, For their sake, I genuinely hope nobody (laughs) has that particular circumstance. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's... That's a uh, real trouble. <laughs> yeah. Now, no, no. Sill. I was. I referred to this really briefly earlier. Sill makes a good point when she brought up the fact that she did technically ask Dalinar before his departure if he could make her a little more human in a way, mm-hmm. help her to be able to feel as Kaladin feels. Not that I think he he uh, he being Dalinar like consciously or even subconsciously did anything, but Sil's behavior is kind of starting to make a little more sense when you view it through that light. You know, at least or maybe her behavior for the first few chapters of this section, because you know things really start to happen and they happen and they happen <laughs> pretty quickly. Doesn't really give her much time for fretting. But I, as soon as she said that, I did remember that that moment earlier in the book, and I went, "Oh, this could be involved." Right. Or maybe it's just a natural, uh, a natural result of their further bond. You know, their mm-hmm. progressing bond. She's becoming more human. You know. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what to make of it. I, I don't know if I could fall down on one side or the other. Uh, but I think there may be aspects of both. Mm. Um, but certainly, what is happening to her is concerning in its own way. Uh, you know, while Kaladin is struggling like he has never struggled before, now Syl is struggling. You know, to the point where Kaladin is, like, calling her out for trying to fake being cheerful. Yeah, it's, no, I... Uh, yeah. It, it, it really says something to consider the Kaladin's circumstances just from part two and compare them to part three. Like, I wrote down, this is, this is more of what we want from Kaladin. We get to see him fighting. We see Kaladin mm-hmm. being Kaladin. Storm blessed, you know, he's too determined to help, too stubborn to die. It's so much fun to read. But at the same time, it's so opposite from what he was just living through in part two, where he was, I mean, he was progressing. He was feeling better mentally. He was eating every day. He was sleeping, you know, a lot better. He was helping people. 
and now he's literally a fugitive. He's on the run for his life, and he's just barely staying one breath ahead of death, you know, step by step by step. It's it, it's just the, the, the contrast in his circumstances is impossible to ignore, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's rough to read. It is rough to read. Um... I hope it gets better. Oh, boy. Anyway, that's everything I have about Kaladin for now. For now. Okay. Navani? Uh, let's, let's save Navani for last. Okay, okay. I want to talk about Yasna. Really? I didn't write down anything about Yasna, but I think I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Really? That's surprising. Well, maybe not what you're um, going to say, but what you want to talk about. Go ahead. Yasna... Uh... really gets humanized in these points of view. Yep. It's easy to see her as this cold, emotionless, logical being. But we see real vulnerability with her. And and not just vulnerability, but we see her trying and failing at things. Which... Casual success is synonymous with Yasna. She is the competent one. And and seeing her here trying new things, feeling the need to put herself out of her comfort zone, uh, I think adds a lot of complexity to her character. And I appreciate it greatly. I've never really loved Yasna as a character. Um, like, I've been okay with her, but I, I certainly don't have the love for her that, you know, you do or, oh, or a lot of other fans... Um, I love me some Yasna. Yeah, I don't, I don't worship at the it's altar of Yasna or anything. Um, but I like her a lot more after reading these chapters, after seeing how she's approaching being a queen, how she she feels the need to develop like personal respect with those who follow her, and how she is striving to improve the government of, uh, you know maybe not improve like like she wants to dismantle the monarchy basically like she she wants to be the last monarch of Alethgar she she wants to make real change happen and she is using this time of upheaval to affect that change hmm. and I really appreciate that I, I think that shows there are more depths to Yasna than we knew after the first couple of books. Yeah, it's it's a little surprising to me that you have more to say about Yasna than I do for this part, because I've been a self-professed huge fanboy of Yasna up until now, and I still am. <clears throat> I appreciated a couple things, and both of which, you know, you did just touch upon. Number one, her frailty, or her, her humanity. The fact that we got a closer glimpse at that. I mean, there's a moment where she's in her shard plate, and she's fighting on the battlefield, and she gets, I think she gets knocked over, and she's oh, like... And she's just trying to regain her feet, and she's starting to realize that she's still mortal. I mean, she is the Night Radiant that is farthest along in all of her oaths, at least mm -hmm. out of our point of view characters. But she's still a human, and it's interesting to see that, you know? We didn't get a whole lot of that earlier. And uh, not only that, but we also get to see her kind of bend a little more. We get to see her move with the wind. We, we see her confronting Dalinar, but he makes a couple of good points, and she acknowledges that, and she goes, Okay. I'm willing to try, you know, I'm willing to, to consider the fact that I'm wrong here. And she's, 
you know, what I'll say it again, she's just not as stubborn. And I, I suppose, you know what, there is a third thing. I loved seeing her using wit as a yes. verbal Rottweiler, <laughs> you know, and just sicking oh, yeah. him on Harsher. with art like that. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was brutal. And he, and he gets to a point where he's like, this isn't a joke anymore. This is like, you know, you're you're an abuser. Like, you're a terrible person. Fight me. Like, that kind of a thing. Um, Boom. Ruth R. What? Dude. Yeah. How great was that? Well, but, but specifically how Yasna's relationship with Wit, with Hoyd, is getting developed here. Yeah, that's a little... I love it. And I think this may also be playing into Yasna's willingness to to be a little more vulnerable and to be a little more introspective. Uh, Hoyd has this effect on people, as we've seen. You know, he, he tends to have a really good understanding of those who need advice, need help, and whether they want to admit they need it or not. And I think we can all agree that at some level, Yasna does need help. You know, she is still growing as a person. It's easy to lose sight of that because she, she comes across as so confident. Uh, but yeah, and of course, I'm always going to be down for more page time for Hoyd, because... Oh my he's god, great. I love how much he's getting, dude. We, maybe this could have been a, a style point for all I know, but the overt uh, presence of Ho- of Hoyd and Wit and how he's just there in the center of everything on in Emule and he's he's giving them direct advice about odium, about race, the vessel, about everything concerning wh- how they should go forward. I'm just like, "Whoa! This is yeah. so much more of a hand than he- I've seen him being like willing to take at any time." Yeah. Hands down. And it really shows, you know, just how important he considers what is going on uh, on uh, on Roshar versus... Which is scary in its own right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm trying to think if I had any more with Yasna. Uh, I didn't have time to finish writing down all of my notes today, so I'm kind of winging it a little bit right now. Yeah, that's, but... what, that's kind of what I'm doing, too. Um... Uh... Oh, oh yeah, my my last note with Yasna, I, I just remembered. Um, when she does get knocked down on the shard plate, and, and people are, like, stabbing pikes through her visor, like, into her eyes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. <laughs> I was a little scared like, in that moment when she got had the one through her eye. I was like, oh, no, Yasna, my girl, get out of there. Like, I, I realize that Radiants can heal themselves pretty much instantaneously, but that that's... That still hurts. Like, there's oh, still man. excruciating but pain. Why are you just thinking about that now? What's been going on with Kaladin and the Pursuer? He's had, like, his spine broken. Well, not broken, yeah. but he's had his, his several cuts to himself. He's had spears through him. He's had uh, taken axe wounds. And you're waiting until now to say when Yasna gets knocked down to go, yeah, the Radiants really have to be in a lot of pain, even though they can heal. Dude, well, why don't you bring this up? Mostly because this is a particularly horrific... Like, getting a spear through the eye, you know. <laughs> I guess, but I mean, t- think what, what happened to Shalon and Oathbringer. Of course, then again, we haven't recorded that episode yet, so maybe that's why you haven't brought it up yet. When she has to rip the f- crossbow bolt out of her head and it makes her pass out when it happens, too. She can't even yeah, speak while yeah. it's happening. I was like, whoa. <laughs> it's hit the part of her brain that controls motor function and, and mouth control. Mm-hmm. I was like, dude, that's interesting, but damn, that's it's kind of dark. <laughs> yeah, well... Like I said, we're we're getting dark. <laughs> we are getting dark at the Stormlight Archive. Um, mm. 
Uh, let's talk about Dalinar and Renarin real quick. Okay. Do you have anything about them? Uh, let's see here. Dal I only have one quick point about Dalinar, and I have nothing about Renarin, but I'm, you know, I'm still definitely willing to riff on, on Renarin. But as far as Dalinar goes, um, I just want to say I am so pumped to see that he w actually wants, he requests a one-on-one -on -one with Ishar. Like, <laughs> I didn't even dare to hope that we would get something like that so soon in the series, and because obviously I'm just still at the end of part three as of the recording of this, I'm still nervous to hope for it because that is going to be way too delicious to read. I almost feel like that something's going to happen and it's not going to happen because that has to be taken away from me. That's just too good to <laughs> to hope for. Well, as far as Dalinar goes uh, with my notes, I just, I just wanted to talk about how wholesome it is. Dalinar to me is like the ray of light in this section where Navani and Kaladin and Yasna, to her own extent, and Venli are really struggling. And Dalinar, you know, he has his own struggles here, but we are seeing him really coming into his own. He, he has become that new, better man. Watching him, you know, playing with Gavinor. Watching oh, him... Oh my god talking with the mink and, and taking the step back and, and being determined to be a better man and to be the right kind of leader. It, it's, it, it's wholesome. It's just wonderful to read. And it helps get me through what otherwise would have been a really difficult part of this book to read because of how dark it gets. It's just so odd to consider that scene of of, of the Blackthorn sitting down with. Well, how old is is is, is uh, Gav Gavilar? Listen to me, Gavinor. How old is he now oh, at this point? I don't remember. I, five I, or I six. Swear, He's young. He's very young. Yeah, I I could have sworn I had the impression in Oathbringer at the end of Part Three that he was like two. So it surprised me when he was speaking full sentences. You know, but then I I stopped to consider. Well, the, the, honestly, the damage, the mental damage that he got from. The spren there in the palace and the unmade. I was like, okay, he could have actually been older, and I just didn't realize it at the time. And now he's he's speaking full sentences, but it's just such an incongruous uh, scene to picture in your head: the Blackthorn, Dalinar himself, sitting down and just entertaining mm -hmm. the notions of a five-year-old and playing games with him. It's like what? It's like it's like a rhinoceros at a tea party. How do you conceptualize that? Right. Right, and then and then I also love the scene when he goes to talk to Renarin, and he spends some time with Bridge Four. You know, he gets the the bowl of stew, and he hangs out to listen to some of, you know, the stories, and and gives them that morale boost. I, I love that kind of stuff. You mm. know, the the sense <laughs> of fraternity, brotherhood on the front lines, and 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 recognizing how much that's helped Renarin as well. He notices Renarin doesn't have his, you know, his fiddle box. He doesn't need it because he's confident there. He's comfortable. And and seeing how Renarin has come to be secure in his powers as this new kind of truth watcher. It's it's touching stuff. Are we sus of that box by the way? We haven't talked about that on these episodes at all, but that Renarin's little box, I've heard that discussed a little bit in the fandom. Is there anything you want to put forward as a theory because I mean, I've noticed it, but I I that he's that he's got it and I I know Brandon Sanderson well enough to be suspicious of every little detail. But I just for the life of me, I can't 
put anything else together about this little box. What about you? Oh, I I thought it was just where Gliss was hanging out for most of the time. It was how but he in kept the box? Gliss hidden. Yeah. Well, he says in this part, though, that Gliss hides inside him for the most part. Well, now, yeah. Oh. As the bond progressed. Yeah, but I mean, but, I, yeah. I mean obviously I he also used that. it as like a, a, a concentration device. I mean, yeah, it, this is... Uh, kind of yeah, exactly. You know, he, he does have... Um, he is at, at some level on the autism spectrum, so... Uh, I I don't I never got the impression that it was anything sinister or supposed to be anything Aren't beyond you? like maybe a hint that oh he's hiding Gliss, but yeah yeah I was just a little suspicious for the first you know few years especially after Words of Radiance after we got a little more about Renard I was I was trying to f- put together anything I could about that box but I really came up with nothing honestly yeah I I just I was like oh yeah that's where Gliss has been hanging out cool. Um, the last character I have to discuss is Teravangian, but I have a lot to discuss about Teravangian. <laughs> yeah. The, so, so first, you know, with the interlude, you know, from his point of view, um, for this part, and I only, and I say for this part because I flipped ahead just one page and I saw his name listed in the coming interludes as well after part three. So I'm really excited to get back into those. But in yeah, this interlude. He's, he's the novella interlude character. He's in all of them. Oh, okay, quick, cool. You know, cool. like in, in Way of Kings, it was Zeth. In Words of Radiance, it was Esher and I. You know, like that. There's one character who's in every interlude. Sweet, sweet, yeah. Um, see, when I think of Words of Radiance interlude or uh, novella interlude, I just think Lift because that is such a long interlude there. <laughs> um, but anyway, going back to this one here with Teravangian, we can see that there's something that's not quite okay with Odium. Teravangian notices that he seems a little um, exposed in a weird way. There's a sickly glow inside of him. It's Mm -hmm. subtle, but Odium does noticeably have to stop and concentrate to make it vanish. Um, And in our previous interludes, you know, like, sorry, interludes, I should say epigraphs, you know, just finished. I shouldn't say that word. I should say, (laughs) sorry, let me back up. The uh, the epigraphs, the mysterious... (laughs) author of such, just finished pondering about the relationship between a shard's vessel and the shard itself, and its intent, and how dissonance can spell victory or disaster in some cases. I just figure it would be far too convenient, wouldn't it, at this point for the vessel, after literally tens of thousands of years, to suddenly now be weakening or or detaching in some weird way, right? That would just be entirely too much coincidence. I mean, I I don't know if that's something you can say is just now happening. Okay. I mean, well, we, we haven't just, really sorry, seen just, much of Odium. It, it, if if that's what that means, it's just now I, expressing I itself if, in the text. Yeah, it means. Yeah, I don't know. I I mean, you you could be onto something there. But... Seemed pretty damn mighty in Oathbringer when the Stormfather was whimpering that Odium is just too strong, and well, now he's suddenly still a Odium... shard. I mean, he, he, if sorry, I'm just, yeah, I'm just talking. Maybe about I'm misunderstanding like, you with the shard. Like the shard is vessel, I don't weakening know. as yeah. itself. Like I, I thought you were saying like, oh, this is this is where the intent odium is overwhelming the vessel rays. Like, is that what you're saying? Uh, well, not necessarily overwhelming. There should be there could be some dissonance or something happening between the intent of the shard and rays himself as the vessel because that's kind of a lot what what the epigraphs 
directly before this interlude we're talking about. You know, they're making that very clear distinction between Vessel and Shard and how they can work for or against one another with disaster or victory. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm hmm. absolutely I grasping at straws here. Out of those interludes. Or out of those epigraphs. They definitely I thought it was more that... Talked uh, about it's, the Vessel and the Shard and the relationship. It, it, it did, but he was... Uh, you know, the writer of that letter to to me, my interpretation of it was he was saying, "You are too fixated on the vessel when really what you should be worried about is the intent." And you know, if what you're saying is true, this this vessel has had the shard of odium for all this time. Yeah, there's no way the vessel is still in in charge. That he's he very, must have been overwhelmed. Chance. And he's like, and then he said, "What you should be most worried about is if you have a a vessel." who's really, really crafty and can uh, use the intent, like, like work with the intent. And that's the most dangerous thing. But he was yep. saying that he thought that there was no way that was the case with Odium because he had had the, the shard for too long. Yep. And that that and that's I guess that's why I was assuming you were talking about like the intent overwhelming rays. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that still fits in with what I had been postulating there a little bit. Um, it's definitely very, very, very close. And I, like I said, there's a very, very good chance that I just... I saw the distinction between the shard and the vessel, and then I took that and ran with it once I saw the first problem with one of the shards, I suppose. You know, I'm absolutely grasping at straws there. I will fully admit that. Okay. But I'm um, still going on with Teravangian, though. Um, in this interlude, we're still talking about the interlude here, uh, dumb Teravangian, as I'm going to classify it, as that's how he classifies himself, still smart enough to think about some big things. We learn that Dalinar was not just needed by Odium to smother Roshar with war and chaos and bloodshed, but the heavens themselves as well. And Teravangian seems to think, like, it's, 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 it's a certainty that Odium had Cosmere-wide plans for his champion. Or he might still, you know, yeah. and that's intimidating to consider. It's so intimidating, and I love it. It's delicious. Yeah, some bombs. I mean, just dropping bombs. <laughs> like, yep. <laughs> oh, you, it's you, a... you can't avoid that. Like, that's just what he's doing in this book with with the Cosmere stuff. He's dropping bombs. Yes, and I've said it before, I'll say it once again, I'm sure I'll say it going forward, but just the, the idea of being able to see the, the look on Sanderson's face when he finally gets to write that line. You know, just, oh, it's gotta feel so good, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I mean, we, think, think about these next six words. I will miss you, Odium said. When talking to Teravangian, what an odd choice of words he chose there. And then we learn that after this, we learn that Odium fears Nightblood and and Renarin or Renarin. <laughs> hell, am I saying in Zeth? I yeah. mean, it's not too surprising knowing having more context as you know Cosmere wide fans and knowing what that blade can actually do. But it really begs the question: Why still? You know, I'm just I'm so excited going forward. Yeah, I, I have one more kind of remark about Teravangian. And that's Same. this this last scene with Dalinar when mm. he finally goes and talks to him, and they have this this whole conversation about morality and and rulership and and uh, the topic of Teravangian's ego, and it ends, you know, with with 
you know, Dallin are saying, I'm not going to kill you. He says, you have lived your convictions, however misguided they may be. Now I'm going to live mine. And at the end, when I face Odium and win, you will be there. I'll give you this gift. And he says, the pain of knowing I was wrong. You told me earlier that you wished to be proven wrong. If you're sincere, and this was never about being right or about gaining power, then on that day we can embrace, knowing it is all over. Old friend. Taravangian looked at him, and there were tears in his eyes. To that day, then, he whispered, and to that embrace. <laughs> Spectacular. I need to take a moment and collect myself, because you are absolutely right. That that has been the most moving set of words that I have come across in this book yet, and perhaps in the entirety of this series yeah. yet. Yeah. I mean, word for word, nuance for nuance, that is... When, when I read that for the first time, there were tears in my eyes. Same. It is there's tears, tears in my eyes now, dude. <laughs> I'm feeling yeah. it, man. Oh. Yeah, anytime, anytime somebody wants to complain about Brandon Sanderson's dialogue or, or, or his character work, nah, man. No. Nah. This guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, shall we head on to Navani? Or do you have yeah, a, I mean, another Teravangian? No, no, that was it. You literally took my oh, last okay. Teravangian point. I'm so <laughs> glad you, you did because you stated it better than I could have. And I just, I guess the only thing I would have said beyond that is just this, again, this is Exhibit A in his improving character work. Mm-hmm. The, the, that moment, the intimate moment for both of these characters is just, yeah, you know, eight seconds of silence, whatever that was. Oh, sorry, I do have one last general character point it's actually just a stupid little throwaway thought i just love the fact that we haven't yet seen the lopen oh <laughs> said it i said it come after me fight me yeah, yeah. i i love the fact that we haven't had the lopen yet it's it's now perfect stormlight without him <laughs> Ooh, that's gonna be divisive well, well <laughs> anyway i'm done with characters uh, well, we we have Navani and Lift still to talk. About. Oh yes, I'm sorry, I skipped Navani earlier to get back down to where, uh, yeah, Dalinar yeah. Yasna. Sorry, let's discuss Navani. Yeah, because we're really seeing the turn with her character here. She is starting to starting to really act out that she is in fact a scholar. She, you know, it's presented as a bad thing, right? You know, she's separated from her ardents, from her scholars. You can only, uh, Rabonio says, you can only communicate with them twice a day, and, and I'm going to vet your messages. And I also got a chuckle out of that one line where she's like, and if you're going to put some codes in them, please make them good. I wrote it down. Like, yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but what Rabonio did there was unintentionally the best thing she could have done for Navani. Removing her excuses. Navani has to has to be a scholar on her own now. She has to re- be a researcher on her own. And I love it. Hmm. Yeah, you went on uh, uh, at length in the past couple of episodes about how Navani is just not doing herself enough credit. And I was very much tempted to agree, or I did overtly agree, because you're absolutely right. I hadn't considered it too much beforehand, even though I've said publicly in the past, I love Navani. She's one of my favorite female characters in epic fantasy. She's 
brilliant, and I, I mean that both uh, literally and figuratively, you know? But mm-hmm. I hadn't really considered, you know, how she treats herself until you started talking about it. And you were absolutely right, and I can see why you brought that up, because now that I'm looking for it, I get to appreciate these moments. I get to, I have the context to really applaud for Navani as much as I wanted to, so it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been on record as saying, I... I didn't really like Navani at all in the way of kings. Uh, to to use your um, uh, your modern vernacular, uh, oh. she was sus. Oh, uh, really? I forgot about that. That's right. <laughs> um, and and I have slowly started appreciating her more over you know the course of words of radiance and, and Oathbringer. But it's really in Rhythm of War that I just outright enjoy reading from her perspective. She's she's a great character. And and I'm really glad Brandon gave her more of the spotlight in this book. Mm. <laughs> so. That's two of us, man. Um, when I read, uh, like, what, like, see, I read Kaladin's viewpoints for spectacle. I read Navani's for the science. We're learning so much out of her interactions with Raboniel and her interactions with the sibling, as well as, you know, just being unleashed on her own with her nothing but her and her ingenuity, investigating these different forms of light that she knows and that we know of now. I'm just, I'm so, I've said it before, again, I'll say it. I'm so invested in these scenes in a way that I'm not invested in a whole lot of others. And there came one moment, I swear to God, there actually came this moment when Raboniel tells her that she can't combine the two forms of light because, and I quote, they are like oil and Mm -hmm. water. And my brain, in this second, immediately went, well, unless you have an emulsifier. But then I stopped and I chided myself for being stupid. I'm like, how the hell would you combine two sources? Oh my God, Navani just said it, an emulsifier. What is happening? (laughs) I li- like for those twelve seconds. I was berating myself for being an idiot, and then Navani just outright said it. And six months ago, I would not have had the the anything remotely resembling the chemistry background to conceive of even saying that. It just so happens though that this past summer, you know, hello quarantine of twenty twenty, I had a big summer garden, right? And I had some pests that I had a problem with, and I looked up solutions and I learned how to make an organic homemade pesticide. It was with neem oil and water. But because it's oil and water, I had to use dish soap, of all things, because that's key, right? Mm -hmm. That's a surfactant. That is an emulsifier. And I learned how that works. It's at the particulate level. (laughs) It can bond with water and with oil, you know, one on each end. And that's how dish soap works. It's how it takes – I'm sorry. I'm getting – I'm getting into science now. But it, it, it made me giggle with irony. I just loved it when that moment came up. Yeah, yeah. And I need to ask you, before we go on to lift. Okay. How how loudly did you squeal in delight when we got the names Tower Light and Life Light? Oh! <laughs> it wasn't so much squealing as it was squeaking. And I was clapping like a seal, probably, is the best way I'll say to... I'll use the best way I'll describe that. Yeah, It was okay. um, something else. I... I mean, I don't, I'm not, aesthetically speaking, I'm not a huge fan of the term life, or sorry, life, I love that one. I'm saying tower light. I wanted it to be oh. like something else. Not sibling light, but something, maybe the sibling has a name. Light. I love I hate tower, tower light. light. I don't like that. Oh. It's just, just aesthetically. But it's life so, light, I was like, oh, that's got a ring to it. I love it. To me, tower light has like the majesty to it. Uh, when I, when I hear that name, 
what honestly comes to my mind is like the image of the white tree in Minas Tirith. Okay. Uh, it's, Fair enough. It's this, it's this feeling of ancient elegance and power that is fading, right? There's, there's something just perfect about it to me. I makes, love the term Tower Light. It makes me think of Fable 2, the giant... Hey, did you ever play Fable 2? No. Did you ever play any Fable game? You didn't. Mm-hmm. Where probably not. There's, there's a huge tower that has like the controls, like world changing properties with the magic there, and it's mm-hmm. a big lance of light into the sky. That's what it made me think of, and I was like, I can I can appreciate it. It just it didn't. I don't know. I was hoping that the, that the sibling would have like a deeper name, an actual true name, and it would be involved there. It would just be something super cool. But I mean, you know, with the fact <laughs> that we learned about both of these alone, especially Life Light too, especially the manner in which we learned them with Life Light, it was Windle who gave us our first big hint when he was saying to Lyft, you know, if if Mother is involved, maybe it isn't Stormlight after all that you're burn- or that you're consuming, or however he phrased it. And I went, oh my god, it's like a cultivation light. That would be really cool. And just last week, I was proposing that Lifespren were perhaps the Spren that made up Edge Dancer's plate, you know, because you see Lifespren mm. when they actually surge bind. So the yeah. fact that it's called... Life light. I just, it's, oh, it really gives me chills when I say it. It's its such a cool concept. It is. And, and that is my segue into Lyft. Because cool. what about this revelation? <laughs> that yeah. she doesn't use Stormlight. She uses yep. Life Light. And it comes, like, the actual overt revelation comes from Marais, of mm-hmm. all people. Marais it, has interactions with Lyft. We see him show up after Lyft gets... Caged. An AVR. Uh, I'm assuming. Well, we'll, we'll talk was it about hunting that during this climactic moment. We'll, we'll talk about or, that aspect of it for our Cosmere wide discussion. But oh, I forgot we weren't there because I thought we were done our characters already. I mean, yep, my bad. Thanks for correcting me. We'll, we'll, lift, uh, lift, she has lift. a red chicken. This this point of view, uh, this interlude, is the best lift has ever been. To me, uh, there are still a couple of moments that you know bother me a little bit with her narrative voice, but very touching. You know her her introspection, her memories of her mother, and we find out what she asked for and why. The why is the big thing, you know, and and we see her really struggling. I I have never felt more sympathetic. To lift, then, while reading this interlude, and then of course we have the second half of the interlude, which we'll talk about more in a in a couple of minutes here. But, but yeah, do you agree? I know neither of us are fans of lift in general, but if if the lift we're getting going forward is more like this, Brandon's going to turn me around on that. You know, I was... Yeah, no, I'm absolutely going to say I, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, I've talked very publicly about how much I hate Lyft. Um, but more and more, that is going to become a past tense when I refer to it. I hated Lyft. I, when we got Edge Dancer, I was probably at my darkest, and I was just so sick and tired of her. Oathbringer had significantly less Lyft, and I thought mm-hmm. it was very, very well done. I think her, I thought her style of humor accentuated very well it wasn't 
uh, it didn't take up too much page time, so therefore it didn't really ruin the experience for me. And in this book, you're uh, with this entire interlude, which is you know a ton of content out of Lyft. I wasn't bothered at any point by it. Hmm. I'm not, well, no, I can't say that. There's one point I'm going to get into with with our uh, Cosmere wide spoiler discussion in a few oh. minutes, but for the most part, you're I mean you're you're absolutely right. I'm not finding myself frustrated with Lyft anymore. I like that she is progressing and that she is learning and that she is growing and she's willing to do all three of those things in a way. And I'm, yeah, I'm really starting to think that I won't be hating her for the entirety of the series. And I'm, <laughs> I'm just still not a huge say, fan. Just going to say, how about Wendell giving her a hug? Dude, that was so nice, wasn't it? Yeah. That was that was yeah. fantastic. What I love Wendell. I've talked so much. I th- I've said it. Wendell is my favorite of the Nahal bonded spren so far. Yeah, and I, uh, he continues to fill that role. He's awesome. Yeah. So on that note, shall we take off the spoiler gloves? Absolutely. Because oh man, <laughs> I have a lot to go over today, just like <laughs> I did yesterday. Probably just as much as I did yesterday. Yeah. And hey, since we're still on the lift interlude, okay? Yeah. Well, I'll get to the red chicken in a second here. But first, we have confirmation, a few confirmations in this chapter here. We know that Lyft not only saw the Night Watcher, but mm-hmm. she actually met Cultivation herself and was changed by Cultivation herself. Yes. And we get it explicitly shown, because I know you've griped about this in the past. We get it explicitly shown she is growing. Yes. Yes, it's happening. She literally marks it on the wall. Thank you very much. We learn that the Night Watcher is, I, th- I forget that you said unconnected or non-connected, uh, meaning that, with, of course, connected with a capital C, meaning that she's not influenced by the collective thoughts of men mm-hmm. in the same way that other Sprite are. We learn that she was made with a purpose, and that purpose cannot be suffered to deviate. And there's a really, like I said, I just talked about this a couple minutes ago, Wendell's heavy line there. If Mother's not involved, perhaps this isn't Stormlight you're using after all. And I wrote in full caps, Hello Lifelight. And thank you, Marais, for giving us the formal yeah. term. Yep. So, lots yep. to learn there in the lift interlude. Yeah. So now let's talk uh, about this mysterious dead Terrasman with an AVR. Yeah. Okay, dead Terrasman. I didn't pick up on the Terrasman part. Oh, uh, Windle talks about how there were rings on all of his fingers, and he has oh. pale bands. Oh. If if somebody oh. in the Cosmere has rings on all of their fingers, Terrasman. <laughs> this dude is clearly a world hopper, has an AVR. Yep. And Mraze... He's a world hopper, I agree with that. ...killed him and stole his metal mines. Oh, oh, the, they were gone! That's right, she just saw the pale bands on the fingers, if they've been stolen. Yeah. Okay, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I, nice catch. That one went straight over my head. Granted, I only had time to read it once, and that was hurriedly, but damn, nice catch. And let's talk about the AVR, Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the green one I recognized right away as Marie's. Yes. And I, I will admit right away, my first thought was, oh crap. So there's either there's another world hopper nearby or Lyft is about to get an AVR and we're going to start having to suffer void chickens as well as void spren, you know, according to her. 
And of course, there's that moment right, like, like, just like the moment right before a car crash when you realize it's about to happen and time kind of slows down a little bit. We see her save the AVR and run off with it, protecting it. And my thought at this point is just, oh, crap, you know. And then, of course, within a few pages, we get the term Voidbringer Chicken. I'm just, uh-oh. <laughs> well, uh-oh. that's all I'm going to say. I have to admit, I never considered the possibility that she actually bonded the AVR in, in whatever way. Or she's way. going to. That's what I'm thinking. I mean, she's captured, though. I, I always just assumed that Mraze took it. Hmm. Okay. I mean, we don't see her with it the, the, the one yeah. other time we see her, right? Yeah. I mean, given Mraze's propensity for taking trophies, I just assumed he stole the metal mines and now he's, like, captured the AVR. But then if it... What would be the point of showing that? I mean, that's just ha- that's just one AVR that we happened to meet for all of ten seconds, and now it's gone. And it feels like it might as well not have been there. We already had another AVR. Well, who knows? We we don't know what's going on with Mraze going forward. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't. You know, for two more parts, what's going on? But I don't. I was, I was figuring for the rest of this book, maybe she she busts free, somebody helps her, and then she finds the AVR and she rescues it again, and they form a bond because she saved its life. I don't know. That's just. A, a miniature, a pseudo theory I have going forward. Prediction, okay. I should say. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see here. Raboniel reveals to Navani that, oh, yes, we learned this. Uh, and she reveals to us, in, in, by extension, that Soulcasters themselves are Spren. Uh huh. Who made the transfer to the physical. And, and they don't use Spren because they are Spren. And so, um, and also, like a, a few of the Fabrials in the tower, I think they referred to tower Fabrials being in the same way. And I, um, I wrote at the beginning of the reading, and I, I'm starting to finish part three right now, and it's starting to blow my mind all over again when I learn more about the tower and what it needs. So I just, yes. I love that extra bit of info. It's just, it's so juicy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm salivating thinking about it. It's good. It's good stuff. Oh, it is. Now, I want to bring up one thing. Go for it. Uh, and I wasn't able to do this on a previous episode. We talked about the Iriali and their golden hair. Yeah. And how, well, we know the Iriali are descended from world hoppers. And I, and I talked about how there is possibly a link with the um, Nalthian golden locks. Now I'm, gonna, I'm just going to add another layer to this. Another little wrinkle. When... Odium appears to Teravangian. He has golden hair. And he is from Yolan. Now, we do know that oh. Odium... That that Rays alters his appearance based on who he's, you know, sending a vision to. He appears as a singer when he's uh, getting into Moash's head. But I, I was struck by the golden hair... And and I Same. I have to wonder if they're you know if if those golden locks the Iriali have and the royal locks that may be part of that uh, genealogy don't have an origin on Yolan. Well, so, I mean, there is also the Iriali Long Trail to consider. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, Yolan would be the first land. Yeah, the, the Roshar is supposedly the fourth. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And Nalthus, I like that. you would imagine, is the second or third. Mm. 
<laughs> I'm getting excited thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good call. I I did stop to look at the golden hair, but my my only fleeting thought was, oh, okay, Nalthus had golden hair. Irialis have golden hair. There's going to be a connection I'll I'll put later, but I didn't actually dive quite that far into it. Yeah, good call. Okay. Uh, what else do you have for me, Rob? Okay. Um, this is just a, a little miscellaneous point. I loved Cord interrupting Nail with an arrow to the face. Yeah, yeah. And that suffering look, as it's described, as he rips it free and he heals. And I'm just like, why am I chuckling? Or why, like, why am I enjoying a little scene with Nail? Why am I laughing and finding amusement with Nail, of all people? You know, it was a cool little moment. In mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Eshenai's flashbacks... This Okay, so a little question. We, we see her meet... Gavilar and Dalinar, and her impressions of them gave me a bit of pause. Uh, Dalinar was a bit nicer than I was expecting him to be, especially since we're... I mean, right now, you and I are sitting down to simultaneously record our Oathbringer episodes while we're doing the reading for this, and those flashbacks for me are pretty fresh. But Gavilar is already a dickhead, which took me by surprise. And then, almost immediately after that, he's sitting down, and he's trying his best to learn from them. He's asking questions, and he's paying attention, and it just... It's so sudden to me, and I'm just wondering, could it be so simple as just having learned that they have blades? Because for some reason, I doubt it. He just changes so quickly. I, I see it as, like, this book is is our signal that Gavilar has always been a dickhead. And Dalinar has always had, very deeply at times, has always had, you know, uh, a streak of decency. That was just waiting for an opportunity to to come out. And I think it's also worth noting that at this point in the timeline, this is post-Evie Dalinar. So. Yeah. Yeah, it was the eight years ago that keeps throwing me off, but then I start to remember, oh yeah, it's been two years plus since the beginning of the narrative, so Gavilar's assassination is no longer six years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to keep reminding myself of that. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's uh, if I am remembering my timeline correctly, it is post uh, Rathalos, but pre uh, trip to the valley for Dalinar. Yeah, when he so so I think there is some of that damage to him that is uh, already working changes upon him, and that's why he's a little more. Um, or a little less unrestrained beast Dalinar, a little less Blackthorn, and a little more Dalinar that we know and love now. So, yeah, see, maybe uh, that, I mean, that's why I would think it perhaps would, would line up after his trip to the valley, but I, that's literally the only little tidbit that I would have to go on for that, you know. I'm not quite sure how the timelines lie. Right. But while but we're I'm on the topic to of, um, of the flashbacks, Axendweth, mm-hmm. another oh. Terra's woman. Another suspiciously terrorist name, yes. Yeah. So, I I believe the Terrasman who was killed by Moraes and had the AVR was the same Terrasman from the prologue that Navani saw, uh, you know. Okay. And then, I, I don't think there are three, but I do think there are two. So there's this this male Terrasman who had the AVR and was killed by Moraes and was part of Gavilar's little cohort. And then there was the female, the, the Terras woman, Axendweth, who gives... Mm-hmm. Um, That's fear, right? Yeah, who gives Ulim to Ventley. Hmm. Yeah, and she can also speak their language. 
which I found a little sus, you know, going back. I was just Connection. Like, okay, so, sorry? Connection. She's oh, yeah, that's what I was going yeah. with that, sorry, because we've seen that already used, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah we're, in we we're in spoilers, I can say that. We've seen that in, in Era 2, that connection mm -hmm. can just help you speak other language. Or even, I mean, I don't even say Mistborn. We've seen Dalinar do that in the last book. I totally forgot about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. She can probably do that. Yeah, she's, uh, she's the other big thing that came out of this discussion, or, or well, I guess not this specific discussion, but uh, Ulim's discussion with Fenley, the Everstorm was already brewing in Shadesmar. Okay, I was, that was one of my points here. I was going to ask, there's a storm to the south that he supposedly entered it, or maybe he was trapped in, he was trapped in, I think that's what it was. He was trapped in the sphere. So, so this storm is, the south. this is my theory. He's talking about the storm to the south in Shadesmar. Yeah. Now, we know Shadesmar has, is like more or less a flat plain. I think yep. Braze is to the south in Shadesmar. Okay. And so the storm in Shadesmar is brewing in Braze's subastral, but directionally is south of Roshar's subastral. But isn't there an expanse there already? Or is this past the expanse that you're saying? Uh, I think it's to the, on the way. To the south, right? I think it's on the way to another expanse. It would uh, be closer. Okay, that would make it sense, would be, actually, it's because it's closer. So it would be closer. You're right. Ooh. <laughs> That's cool. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Talked. I already talked about Wit and how I'm blown away by how he's just hanging around with Yasna and how he's will. He's so just willing to say whatever he needs to say. Um, oh, uh, Lash, okay, so I'm not sure where I found this line, but I, I did write it down word for word. They had found that a reverse lashing requires a command, or at least a visualization of what you wanted. Really? Uh, I find this to be of interest. I think you should. I think you should also find it of interest, the epigraph talking about intent. Hmm. And... And deity, and light, and investiture, and 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 and. Yep, yep, All yep, of and this yep. Is connected with a capital C. There are so many pieces that are floating around that clearly fit together, and I just can't find the order in which they do. It's it's cool though. Um, the the Cosmere okay. gloves are so thoroughly off in this book. <laughs> I mean, oh. well, well, so, white sand. We have white sand mentioned in the epigraphs. You're damn right we do. We have Ralkalest again and again, aluminum. We have it confirmed in the text here. Ralkalest, your people call it aluminum. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's all delicious. over. It's, it's all so over this book. <laughs> um, little, okay, so little, what was I going to say? A little prediction, I think it was. Sure. Okay, good. Here it is. So, on the battlefield in Emul, Emul, Emul. I'm going to say Emul from say now Emul. on. Um, yeah, following Teravangian's uh, betrayal, not portrayal, betrayal. God, I can't speak. I've had a little too much of this beer here. Uh, Dalinar has an idling thought. He thinks at one point, storming Teravangian, damnation take you. Uh huh. 
and this is in chapter 50 for those who want to go check it out. I stopped to write, wouldn't that be interesting to see Teravangian actually end up in Damnation or on Braze, you know, perhaps as another herald, you know, and that got me to thinking about his curse and his boon. And there was a theory I stumbled across years and years ago. I'm thinking, thinking it was 17th shard I was on. Um, but I can't be entirely certain. Somebody postulated that Teravangian and his curse and boon situation could in some way be completely the opposite of what we expect. In that it's not his intelligence slash indifference combination that right. was the boon, but the curse. And his compassion slash stupidity combo, as he calls it, would turn out to be his boon and his gift and his capacity to save mankind. Uh-huh. You know? And it's fairly common. Theory. I've been saying for a long time. Yep, I've been saying for a long time now that I think Dalinar, as a Bondsmith, can address, as we hear, I think, in one of the epigraphs for Words of Radiance, that the Bondsmiths can address the bond that the Heralds have, or maybe I should say the Oath Pact. So, something fishy's going on here, and I just, I like the fact that he's got this moment with Teravangian, and in this little moment, just that damnation take you, I was like, oh, huh. Yeah, I certainly never thought about it in, in that kind of depth. <laughs> I just I just thought of it as another curse. That's, yeah, I mean, that's it, really it interesting. Probably is, it I probably is. I'm probably just chasing the darkness. I mean, I I will say I'm glad that they're addressing the Oath Pact directly here and how the Oath Pact is basically worthless now. That, like, it's... Even if Dalinar could figure out how to reforge the Oath Pact it's probably not going to be effective because of the Everstorm. You know, like, the Fused don't go back to Braze anymore. They just go into the Everstorm and get respawned, you know? And and so, if he's going to do something like an Oath Pact, it's going to be dramatically different from what we saw. And the Stormfather also points out, justly, what, what the Heralds chose to do is affecting them. I mean, he's like, look, like, this took a toll on them. I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that is being brought up. Um, and, and I don't know. I, I don't think we're going to see another Oath Pact being made. I know a lot of people like to theorize that, like, you know, the, the 10 point of view, the 10 flashback characters are, are going to be new heralds. But I also think, like, well, oh. that falls apart immediately because Eshenai is dead. And then they're like, oh, well, Venli. Venli will be the, the replacement. But... But just the the baseline, what the Oath Pact does, has been circumvented. So, yeah. But they're all there. I want to say it again. There are two separate five book arcs. You know, there could be an argument to be made. I I don't like the argument to be made, but there is an argument to be made that maybe that just happens at the end of book five. Yeah. I don't like that though. I don't like entertaining that notion. The fact that these characters just have to return to torture and that's how we get salvation. Yeah, oh, man. Um, here's here's a, here's one from completely out of left field. I have a prediction as to who the uh, the bondsmith that is is going to become for the sibling mm. and to bond the sibling. Mm-hmm. Dabid, thinking it's going to be Dabid, because he is he is so friendly already with the sibling, and he's already traveling it through it at this point, and he's somehow getting all of these spheres and all his equipment and all his food for Kaladin and Teft. You know, he was the first one to make contact that we know of. Actually, no, he's not. And I totally forgot about this. Hang on a second. The big old grin I had on my face in chapter 49 
let's talk about this for one second really quick. When the sibling overtly says, there is an insane woman in a monastery yep. <laughs> who I contacted. <laughs> I brought her up in Words of Radiance. You, you I brought did. her up in part one of we, Rhythm we of War. We have discussed her multiple times. <laughs> Bingo! Red. Suddenly, one of the world spread. I'm just going to use that word. I don't know if that's a word, but it is now. The sibling is talking to her, and I, I knew something was off about her, and that she simply wasn't wasn't just simply insane. I knew there was going to be another secret there, and we got when it. When you brought that up in, in Rhythm of War Part One, I I was trying so hard to keep a straight face. I was trying oh, so God. hard. I can't wait to listen to the episode for our censoring purposes and actually listen to you try and keep your cool during that moment. I tried I've to, been talking I, I about her for six years. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. Yeah, there's got to be something more going on. Like, <laughs> I was thinking about your reaction while I read it today, and I was like, no, he played that one off pretty well. I, I really... Sometimes I can tell when you're being a little cheeky. This time, you... you yeah. I took it hook, line, and sinker. You were you were uh, pretty blasé about it. Yeah. Well. Well. So um, dab it. Um, I dab it though. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I will say course, that yeah, I'd hope so. Um, I have like over over the course of this book, at various points, I was convinced that either Navani, Relaine, or David was going to be bonded to the sibling. At various points over this book, and like you, um, by the end of part three, I was like, I think it's going to be David. Yeah, there's a there little was... moment for Relaine that was mm-hmm. cool. But... Yeah, when when Navani brings up, she's like, "Well, what about a singer?" And the and the sibling's yeah. like, "Huh? Well, maybe." Well, first maybe. the sibling is like, "Are you are you crazy?" And then she's like, "Well, think about it. This one it doesn't serve odium." And the sibling is like, "Then he's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. all right, baby." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's indignant yeah. at first, though. Yeah. So, um... He, she, it, they. I'll say they. they. Yeah, they is the pronoun for the sibling because it eschews gender. It's it's super yeah. not down with the, the humanized spren. Yeah. Not, or not any a, of the four. Yeah, not a big fan of, of, of humans, the sibling. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you can't say that. Yet, I think they might grow oh, on the sibling. Man. <laughs> That'd be cool, but yeah, my my guess at the moment is David. I just there's I oh, mm-hmm. oh and how could I forget to bring this up? Life before death, my man, you magnificent bastard, David. Thank you so much. I was I've been waiting for so long to see when David would finally speak. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Okay, uh, do you have any more Cosmere theories or? Um, predictions for the uh, remainder of the book. No more predictions. One little moment that I just want to point out, and another perhaps theory we could have to talk about. So I have two little things here. First, let's get into that theory, or, or possible theorizing. I just want to see what you make of this. In one of the flashbacks, Venley and Eshenai's mother, Jaxlim, mm-hmm. she seems noticeably more alert and alive in the storm. She does. She like she moves with more energy to her step. She also has deeper memory than she normally does. I mean, she's telling Eshenai a story about venturing into the storms with her father. You know, years past. So I just wanted to see what you'd make of it. Is there anything like with her particular affliction, which to me just reads like Alzheimer's or yes. something similar? Yeah. Uh, she's in the storm and suddenly she feels a lot better. What do you make of that? Uh, what I make of that is that she's approaching a perpendicularity, and. 
mm-hmm. at the perpendicularity, the three realms are one, and spiritual identity is strong, and and so she's being essentially drawn closer to who she really is and what her memory really is, mm. and so she's she's a little a little more uh, there as she gets closer nice. to the perpendicularity. Yeah, you, you went one step farther than I actually did when I was considering it. I just thought, okay, so she's in the high storm. She's appro- approaching a perpendicularity. Three realms are one. Something's happening. But I hadn't considered the fact that spiritual identity could be a lot closer to the surface. Yeah. At least. Yeah. During the... Uh, the yeah, okay. That's awesome. I like that. I like what you're onto there. And my last one, Rider on the Storm. Uh-huh. That's it. We finally get the answer to a question that we talked about a few weeks ago. I want to say it was part one. It would have to be part one of Words of Radiance. When we were talking about what the hell is up with that vision that Kaladin has Mm -hmm. as the storm when he's crossing the continent, you know, bringing his wind and his water. I mean, it's it's not too difficult to figure out in hindsight, but to hear the storm father confirm that he can just do this when he wants to, not with like a vision of the past that he's been instructed to pass on, but he could just choose to... Show somebody the current. Yes. Right? I just thought, I was like, okay, finally we have a concrete answer on that. That's nice. Yep. Yep. Oh, and also I went I went one step further. I actually extrapolated past that. Uh, there's a death rattle that we had discussed in the epilogues in The Way of Kings that said um, it was taken from a man who had visions during the high storms. And we thought, we postulated maybe this guy had been a proto-bondsmith. I'm starting to realize now with this added context, he could have just had a current vision of the high storms. Right? doesn't necessarily mean bondsmith uh he could have but i do think that guy is a bond was a proto bondsmith uh okay. yeah i i do think that okay that's everything i have to say for pop for part three of uh i almost said words of radiance because i was just talking about it yeah. rhythm of war yes okay i think i think that's where i'm gonna leave it as well so let's let's head into the final draft Rob, what are you doing? And of course I'll start. So I I was drinking a rather plain and cheap beer that I have talked about before, and I will not bring up again because I refuse to, but that was just for the first few minutes of the podcast. Since then, um, I have just (laughs) been drinking another very, very plain, very common thing that everybody here, I guarantee you everybody listening, has tried before. They may be drinking right now because it's this common. It's just Diet Pepsi. Oh, (laughs) A nice, fresh, cold Diet Pepsi. Give me a little bit of caffeine at 11.42 p.m. That's the time we're recording this on October 10th, at least where I am. And, uh, I mean, hey, lack of sugar. Give me that diet. Not too bad. (laughs) That's literally all I've been drinking, dude. All right. All right. What about you, dude? So I'm drinking a beer from Adroit Theory Brewing Company. uh, Heard from these guys before. From uh, Virginia. This is a 15% cuvee, a blend of barrel-aged barley wine, quadruple ale, and imperial stout. And I will say I was surprised by the flavor. I was expecting a lot more um, a lot more of the quad to come through. I was expecting like a really like rounded sweet maltiness. Now, this is straight chocolate. It, and it doesn't say that there's added chocolate in this. It's just like the the malt bill for this, whatever whatever malts they used because they do not list it on this bottle. Um, just straight like dark chocolate. It is delicious. Um, yeah, mm. 
Yeah, wonderful, wonderful beer to drink. Uh, but it's got some pretty cool, uh, you know, label art. Yeah, you, you had me at Adroit Theory. Yeah. Mostly because I've just heard about them from you before. You know? Well, I think you're going to appreciate the name of this because you were going off about it earlier. This beer is called Black uh-huh. Science. Oh, tickle me pretty. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm awesome. glad I had a couple of different options for this episode, and and I asked Lauren, and, and she said you should go with Black Science, and I'm glad I'm glad she said that because after you went on your whole just you know glowing rant about the science in this, I was like, yeah. I love that he's like, you get to see his actual academic background come into play too, right? Oh, for sure. I think he, wait, like what did he? Like, he was going to school to be a chemist or a, a biologist. I can't remember which one of those. I think it was a biologist, right? Microbiologist. It's something oh, like that. Damn, was, I haven't looked it up I in a while. It was chemistry. I'm going to look it up right now because I don't want to get that wrong. Brandon. I mean, it might have just been biochem. Oh, that biochem is really starting to make me. Uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, biochem major. Yeah. That's what it was. At least that's what Wikipedia says. It's probably accurate. But yeah, you get you still you get to see that he still clearly loves the sciences and he loves to dabble. He's not afraid to dabble, and that's what I respect the most. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, so that's it for today, I think. Yeah, that, that wraps up our discussion for part three of Rhythm of War. <laughs> um, this has been episode 95 of the Inking Out Loud podcast, and next up we have part four, and I cannot wait uh, for that discussion. I, I hope all of you are just as excited as we are for that. Um, if you want to get early access to it, check us out on Patreon to support the podcast. That is patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. You can, in addition to early access to episodes, you can get uh, access to our monthly newsletter, monthly short fiction written by Rob or myself, uh, bonus episodes. You can request a book for us to read, all kinds of fun things. And all of that money goes straight into the pockets of our wonderful artist, Danielle, and our wonderful sound engineer, Pat. So, consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me, my co-host, Rob Santos. So excited. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye, everyone.